Hello, I'm John Kelly and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. That's Radiohead exit music for a film by way of introduction to tonight's guest on Mystery Train, the Sunday special where we get someone to pick the music and it is a filmmaker and much more, Alan Gilson. And Alan, great to have you here. Good to be here, John. So, Alan, your, your movie, uh, your most recent one, Unless, just opened there just uh, at the, at, in the middle of March, just before St. Patrick's Day. And the first thing I want to ask you is, is about that film, actually, Catherine Keener. Yeah, fantastic. How did you get her involved? Well, I mean, I kind of couldn't believe my luck, as you can imagine. I mean, she's kind of the the ideal casting, I think, for any director. I mean, very easy, you know, sent sent off the script to her agent and presumed I'd hear nothing. And uh, and then I got a kind of slightly terse email saying, Miss Keener would like to talk to you. And I said, well, fine. And thinking, thinking, you know, she's going to come on the line with a saying she was vaguely interested, but she'd have a battery of... uh, corrections to the script yeah. but uh, so anyway she rang me I, I, I remember I was sitting at home in my study in, in Wicklow and she rang me and it was kind of dawn or pre-dawn in Los Angeles and we just had this kind of extraordinary conversation um, and she'd been up all night which as, as when I got to know Catherine began to realise this wasn't uncommon uh, and her son Clyde her, her dearly loved son Clyde was, was moving out to live with his dad and uh, she had this whole sense of, of loss of a child, which is really what the film is about. And uh, we had this kind of mad, rambling, wonderful conversation. And she said she'd do it. And, uh, you know, it was a joy, joy ever since. As you say, she's an extraordinary performer. Uh, one, of the, one of the greats, I think, mm. one of the absolute greats. Is there anything you discovered about her personality that might, might be the key to that? <laughs> she, I mean, Catherine is a wild horse. You know, she's a really kind of... Uh, anarchic personality in the best sense, you know, and I think I think she probably she'd say this herself as a reputation in Hollywood for being difficult, but often you what know. What does that the, mean, though? Difficult. Yeah, I think in this business, difficult means intelligent, challenging, thoughtful. Mm-hmm. You want things uh, done properly. Yeah, and certainly yeah. with actors, I, I I would always prefer somebody like that. Um, but she has this wonderful kind of um, uh, kind of craziness, but behind it is this very. Uh, this very kind of um, deep intelligence. I remember the first day we went. To, I went to New York to meet her for what I thought was rehearsals, and she says, "Oh, I think we'll go for a walk." And so we spent the day in Central Park, kind of. You know, it was like a kind of first date. We were kind of having hot dogs and loads of ketchup and going on fairground rides. And and at the end of the day, she said, "That's great. Now we haven't talked about the film at all, but we have." And um, and she was right. You know, there's a kind of there's a kind of emotional intelligence to her. Uh, you know, we, you know, throughout the filming process, we got on really well. But but she wouldn't always agree. So we kind of agree to disagree. Um, but also, you know, I remember very early on in the shoot, she had a kind of emotional scene where she had to drive off down a lane. And we did the scene. It was great. And I cut and I walked down the lane and she was literally sobbing. You know, and, and she sobbed onto my shoulder for about 10 minutes uncontrollably. You know, that this wasn't, this wasn't an act. 
that whatever well of emotion she'd drawn on, it wasn't something she could turn off in an instant. But uh, but she's also she's also great fun. I'm really glad to hear that. I assumed she was uh, what's the word very special, you know, yeah. as a person as well as as, well as an actor. We'll talk about all of this and more as we go on. But first of all, Alan, um, what I kind of didn't realise is you're a Meath man, really. You're 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 a country boy up to a point. Yeah, yeah, kind of to a big point. Um, I mean, I was born in Meath, uh, outside Kells, Cross Keel. Um, onto a farm. My father was a farmer right into his 50s. Um, but kind of strangely, we moved to Dublin when I was very young. Uh, and we moved to Raglan Road, uh, which you'll be glad to know I'm not going to inflict the song on you, even though I feel a certain ownership of it. Uh, but we moved to this big, old, kind of rambling house in Raglan Road when I was very young. So effectively, you know, I grew up in Dublin. I grew up in Dublin 4, you know, which was a very different place then, as you can imagine. But Somehow, I think my father, Matt, never really left the country. He was, uh, he was a horseman, wasn't he? He was a horseman, yeah. later worked for the turf club. Every weekend, he returned to the country. We went down to Meath every weekend. Every Christmas was spent uh, with family in Meath. Um, and, and looking back, when I talk to my friends now, who, you know, most of my friends, and there were very few families living in Ballsbridge at the time, uh, but they tended to be kind of bohemian. You know, they were kind of, you know, it was kind of quite a fashionable place to to live. And and we certainly weren't bohemian, you know. Uh, I remember going to a friend of mine, uh, House the Feelys, who lived in Clyde Road, and they had a black and white photograph of Gandhi over their mantelpiece. You know, this is <laughs> Dublin in the 70s. And we had just lots of nice oil paintings of horses. Um, but the thing is that I think... My friends would say our house was like a country house in the city. Sure. And uh, and interestingly, as soon as I grew up, I moved back to the country. So I think somehow, even though I'm a kind of D4 boy, the country kind of never left me. What kind of music was in the house, Alan? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I wouldn't say, you know, you wouldn't say we were a musical family, you know. Uh, but my father... I think, looking back, loved music, you know, and we had a, a little record player and he loved things like Ivor Novello and The Desert Song and musicals and Richard Tauber um, and Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire and Glenn Miller. Mm. These were the things uh, that he played and, and I have a kind of um, hugely kind of romantic association with all that music to this day and, and, and really love it. Um, but also we had a strange, at the end of the garden there was this old muse and there was a man called Mr South lived in the muse. He, he lived there, he was a kind of sitting tenant and he was a music teacher and he used to come up, I don't think he really liked children, he certainly didn't like dogs, but he would come up once a week to teach my sister Nancy the piano. Uh, and um, but that was the height of music you know I never much to my regret now uh, I, I never learnt an instrument um, but there was always that sense of this music from a different era from uh, I think because my father was relatively elderly when I was born and because he came from the country there was a sense of a connection to an earlier era and, and that music really personifies it for me. So your first choice, Alan, is uh, from Desert Song? Well, it has to be the Desert Song, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, 
you know, this, this strange kind of musical set in North Africa. And I remember seeing it, I think, in Kells. Uh, I, I, I think, uh, and you're at that point of your memory where you're not sure whether you're imagining it, but I'm pretty sure I saw a production of the Desert Song in Kells. Um, uh, and, and my cousin, Helen Kelly, was in it. And there, there was, you know, the red shadow and there was all this kind of North African mystique. And, and so I think... For me, the Desert Song, which has always kind of stayed with me, is that kind of mixture of uh, the exotic, which I'm attracted to, the desert, which I'm attracted to, but also great kind of sentimental romance. The Desert Song, first choice of Alan Gilson, who's with me in studio tonight picking all the music. That does bring you, that's 53 that was, Mm. just before rock and roll. Just before rock and roll. Just before. Now, you went to, to Conleth. Yeah. I, occasionally, you know, I run into fellows who are at Conleth, and I've got this impression of it as being, well, it was a private school for a start, mm-hmm. wasn't it? But, but small. Yeah, very small. Uh, tiny. Uh, tiny. Tiny, yeah. yeah. What, does that, what does that mean when you're in a really tiny school like that? Does it make you a particularly rarefied bird, or does it mean that you're not particularly hooked into the school at all? You actually, you know, you're part of a broader... I think... I think you are hooked into the school. I mean, Connellis was very unusual. It was private school in Ballsbridge, literally around the corner from me. Uh, you know, I could I could walk home for lunch in three minutes. Um, but I think what it did, even though it was in the heart of Dublin Four, because it was a small school, you couldn't you couldn't have gangs. Right. You know, if you went to some of the big, if you went to Black Rock or Michaels or any of these other schools, you could be in a gang. You were in the rugby gang. You were in the cool gang, you were in the bad boys gang. Whereas there weren't enough of us to make gangs, really. And, and so in a way, we were kind of forced to get on. Um, and in that regard, I think it was, it was, it was great, you know, because you had a very... Like a, that sounds healthier, all right. Yeah, you had a very small class, but you had to find your way with each and every one of them. And were people more supportive of, of each other, do you think, in that environment than they, than they can be in bigger schools? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think it was quite a gentle school. You know, it was, it was run by Kevin Kelleher, who's this kind of slightly legendary figure, you know, renowned as the first rugby referee to send the All Blacks off in Lansdowne Road. And, you know, he seemed like a disciplinarian, and he was in lots of ways, you know. But, uh, but there was a gentleness to the school, and there was also... I think, a celebration of the individual rather than the collective. Mm. I think a lot of schools, certainly now, they seem to celebrate the school and the school's achievements and the collective kind of psyche of a school, as the board might see it. And I think traditionally that was overlooked because it didn't matter if you had David Bowie in the school, as long as you had a good Gaelic team or a good rugby team, that's what mattered, yeah. Yeah, whereas Connellus was very much about the individual. And, you know, I was lucky, I think, along the way, uh, also to have a, a lot of really kind of influential English and history teachers who can make a huge impact. You know, one of the things coming into you today, I was thinking one of the first records we had in the house that didn't belong to my father was my sister got uh, American Pie by Don McLean, this great excitement. And um, I mean, I sort of poo-pooed this a bit, but I can remember a young English teacher uh, some years later, called Richard Keane, who was probably, God, he was probably in his early 20s. We thought he was ancient. Plain, bringing in American pie and playing it to us and explaining why this was poetry too. Now, that might seem obvious today, but, mm-hmm. you know, in the 70s, that, yeah. was, that was rare. Yeah. And 
was it a rugby school all the same? I mean, was that big part of things? Yeah, it's funny. It was, it was a rugby school, but in in the softest possible way. You know, partly I think because of Kevin Keller and his association with rugby, rugby was very much part of the school. But it was such a tiny school that we weren't really competing. So where did you sit in this uh, environment then? Where, what, I, what kind of a kid were you? I mean, I think I think in the early days I was a kind of shy kid. I was kind of quiet. Uh, you know, I kind of enjoyed rugby. Probably wasn't quite aggressive enough for it. Uh, I used to do a huge amount of athletics, running, sprinting. To quite a high level. Yeah, that was kind of a big part of, of my life. Were you Irish champion? No, well, at, at a kind of junior level. Yeah, yeah, at yeah, a kind yeah. Of, Amateur level, but yeah, I mean that was a big part of my life. You what know, was and, your, what and was your distance, by the way? Mainly four hundred meters, right. you know, hundred and two hundred, but four hundred, and um, and I loved that, and I loved the kind of discipline of that, and you know, it was hugely formative. I think part of part of my life, but but I think in school, you know, I had all the the, the normal interests, and rugby was a big part of that, but also there was this kind of creative. Uh, interest as well. And and I think what was quite good about Conlitz is that you could carry those two sides of you equally. Yeah. yeah. You weren't forced into one ghetto. That's a good thing. Yeah. Your next choice uh, suggests you at some point were forced into a garage with a bunch of guys with guitars. I don't know if that ever happened, but... Yeah, well, <laughs> I wasn't actually forced, but yeah, the next choice, uh, I guess, as I mentioned earlier, there weren't many families in Ballsbridge at the time. Uh, and I had a great friend, Nicholas O'Neill, who was hugely cooler than I am uh, and still is to this day. And we'd go down to Nicholas's house on Pembroke Road and go into the basement and he'd have things like Rolling Stones records and Bob Marley and Gil Scott Heron and all these characters. So, you know, Nicholas, I think, was part of my education. But he had a good friend who was also distantly a friend of mine called John Russell, whose parents... Uh, were fine, respectable people who were very friendly with my parents. But the point about John is John was this kind of very charismatic guy who went to St. Michael's. Um, and he emerged out of that with a band called Free Booze. And I think their their logic was, you know, that they could have posters which said Free Booze at the Merrion Inn. And uh, so they were kind of the school, you know, I, I wasn't particularly close to them, but these were guys I knew and they were kind of our school band. And uh, I remember going to see them in various places, I think maybe McGonagall's at some stage. But their kind of, their standout song was kind of Louie Louie. Now, I couldn't find a free booze recording, but uh, uh, the Kingsmen original probably, probably did. All right, here we go. Louie Louie. The Kingsman and Louis Louis, the choice of Alan Gilson, who's with me in studio tonight. Alan's a filmmaker and has worked in theatre and various other things, and we're going to talk about all that as as, uh, as time goes on. Just listening to the the, the, the Kingsman there, you know, as you, you mentioned, there there were young bands around, and the, the, your friend's parents had a band and Free Booze, which is a great name. Um, at a certain point, because I know you're just a year or two older than me, and I, and I just and I missed it. Punk came along. Yeah. Uh, I missed it because I was just too young to mm. really get mm. it and I caught up with it after the event sort of mm. thing. Mm. But uh, I think just guessing what age you're at, it probably hit you at exactly the right moment. Actually. Yeah, absolutely. And and it was kind of seismic, even, you know, in the kind of, uh, you know, slightly gilded uh, environment of, of Balls Bridge. But no, it, you know, hugely, you know, before that music was just kind of bubbling along. It was something kind of in the background. And, and it was interesting, Free Booze and Louis... 
Louis and you know they had a great love of rhythm and blues and Nicholas had a great love of rhythm and blues and all that sort of stuff so it was almost like that was like the training ground and then suddenly punk arrived and it was it was a kind of explosion and and it really hit home you know and I think um you know I was trying to I was trying to remember but I'm pretty sure I was at the the clash the Trinity Ball but that could be my imagination yeah, you know we yeah. could be going into the GPO in 1916 <laughs> but bands like that were actually playing around Dublin in kind of small venues sure. um, and I kind of vividly remember the Boomtown Rats too you know being hugely uh, because they were our own you know they came from the same streets and, and Were the Rats known before they became pop yeah. stars if you know what I mean? Yeah, were they, they were. known around Dublin? Yeah, yeah they were playing small venues yeah. around Dunleary and um, and I think Geldof had this extraordinary charisma you mm. know extraordinary charisma and um and I remember watching that late, late show where they came on, did looking after number one, mm-hmm. and went out and trashed the place and went into the audience. And you see, this, the reason I ask this is just because, because I was only, well, in seventy-seven, let's say, I was eleven, mm. just too young yeah. to really know what was going on outside my own world. I didn't know what the scene was in yeah. Dublin or in Belfast or what was going on on the streets, as yeah. they put it. I mean, I wasn't particularly now streets friendly but you yeah, could but feel it I mean I, I thought when I, as I was asking you that question were the rats known people listening might think surely you, surely you would know that Yeah. but yeah. if you're only 11 you don't know these things no no but you know you know I was in my late teens and, and you know Dublin was a very small place you know you had the famous Dandelion Market and there were only a few places music was played and and people knew each other and um you know, and there were there were all the kind of stellar kind of British bands that were kind of coming over here and playing, uh, you know, like the Clash. But there were all the kind of local bands that were permeating up. Um, you know, I don't even know. You know, they weren't punk at all. But but I certainly remember Hot House Flowers were kind of friends, and I remember them playing at parties. I can see Liam Wainley and mm. Maria Doyle Kennedy playing at parties, um, and you know, there was this kind of extraordinary kind of energy you know uh, you know I still have and it's a kind of prized possession uh, a yellow vinyl copy of the Ramones don't come close and I played that over and over and over again you know and and also so there was the punk thing that was very strong and then kind of coming on the back of that what we call new wave you know and people like you know I guess Elvis Costello and and others and and talking heads Mm. you know I I kind of forgot how formative Talking Heads were. I was looking through my old vinyl and I have every Talking Heads album. And well, you know, before we go there, let's let's stay with the punk uh, yeah. music music choice. I was curious what, I, I sort of guessed you would pick some track from that period. Yeah. And you went for Stiff Little Fingers. Yeah. I was trying to, I was trying to think what kind of song represents that era for me, you know, and I, you know, I loved The Clash and I loved, loved the undertones. I remember I very self-consciously, uh, probably thinking of A Day Like Today, that the first film I made, I was in Trinity, I made a little kind of mad short film called Sheila. And I very self-consciously, the first music track in my first film was Teenage Kicks, yeah. you know, uh, which is obviously, the, in a way, the well, obvious you can't argue with that. choice. You can't argue with that. And, and extraordinary. And But there was always something, to, to my ears at least, of Stiff Little Fingers that just was kind of unapologetically yeah. punk. You know, the undertones were, oh, were kind of cute, yeah. you know, and, and, and I love them. 
and, and love them to this day. But I remember distinctly, the reason I chose this was, I remember going to a gig that seemed to be in a classroom in UCD. I mean, it wasn't a hall. It seemed to be a small lecture theatre, perhaps. And, you know, at the time, Stiff Little Fingers came out and, you know, it was the sweaty, crowded room. And in those days, you know, you went to a concert and everybody built up to the single and they played the single as the encore and then good night. And Stiffling Little Fingers, to their credit, came straight out and sang Alternative Ulster and Suspect Device. Mm. And the frenzy, you know, and it was, it was as if saying, look, we're going to the top and we're going over the top. Great beginning as well. I haven't heard that in a long time. Alternative Ulster from uh, Stiff Little Fingers, the choice of Alan Gilsonan, who's uh, with me in studio. So you went to Trinity then, and you s- were studying what? I studied English and sociology, yeah. OK. With a view to anything in particular, or just you wanted to be a student and you wanted to no, find no. your way? No, I, I, I think my, my dear mother, you know, probably thought I should have done law. I probably thought I should have done law, but English was, was where my heart was at. Yeah. And... Um, you know, it's interesting now, I've kids myself now, and you look at them and they're so focused and their friends, are, everything's, there's a whole strategy going on from about the age of three. Um, whereas we had no sense of that. You did English because you loved it. Um, and also, I suppose, indirectly, as soon as I, I went into Trinity, I started directing plays, you know, but just for fun. We did everything for fun. We weren't thinking, oh, this will set us up for something else. And then also then kind of made a short film in Trinity, yeah. What prompted the short film, though? The Film Society decided they were going to make a film and they looked for scripts and I wrote it one night and it happened. And was it any good? I, God, I don't know. <laughs> it, it was mad. It was absolutely mad and it had the undertones in it and it had Thomas Ta- Thallus in it as well. And I don't know. I'll have to dig it out. It's probably only notable for the fact that, that a little-known writer called Anne Enright played the lead role. Um, but, but, I mean, I haven't, I haven't watched it in decades. But what I do remember about it is that it was totally barking mad. And I think that was good. You know, I think... I think the world needs to see this, you know. Yeah. I, think, I, think <laughs> I don't know. Like no. many of my films, they sound better when you talk about them rather than <laughs> see them. Well, one, one of the things I've noticed over the last while talking to people on this programme and how they got up and running at their chosen careers and, and the things that became their, that they made their name at, is there's, there seems to be a moment in their youth, and we've been calling it the naivety of youth or the confidence of youth, whatever you want to call it, where they do something which you probably wouldn't do when you're older, mm. when you're a bit more self-aware, perhaps, mm. I don't know. But, you know, you, you wanted to make a film of Beckett's A. Joe, um, which in itself is, you know, quite an ambitious thing to to mm-hmm. attempt, but you you contact Beckett. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, um, dear well, Sam, well, dear Sam, yeah. Now I know I know various people did, and you mm. could write to him, and he invariably would write mm. back to people in you know, short little the slanty handwriting and all that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, were you were you were you know naive or supremely confident at that point? Probably both. Uh, I think it was innocence, really. You know, I, I, you know, and and I suppose some confidence must have underpinned that. But it wasn't. I don't think we'd any of us had a sense of overconfidence or, or even a sense of where we we're going. It just seemed like a good idea at the time, 
and and I kind of I kind of like that. Yeah. So you you know you do write a polite note to Beckett, and you know he says yes, go ahead, and 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 of course that couldn't happen now because everything's so managed and everybody mm. has so many agents, and you know that that connection is lost. But but you know it was simply an idea, and you just followed your head and your heart. You went to meet him. We did. We did. We made the film. Um, he said, yes, go ahead. And, and then I just, you know, with a similar bit of bravado, contacted Siobhan McKenna, who I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I thought she'd be quite good. Uh, you know, Marlon Brando. I thought yeah. she'd quite a nice voice. It turned out to be her, her last performance. Uh, bless her. But uh, we went up to her house in Rathgar and she did a fairly severe interview. But we, I seemed to just about get through it. And she said, yes. And then I'd seen... Um, a wonderful play, Tom Murphy play in the Abbey called the Gili Concert, which just kind of totally blew my mind. Might come to that later, but but there was an actor in it, Tom Hickey, uh, who I just thought was extraordinary. I mean, it was, you know, people talk about kind of transcendent experiences and the Gili Concert was one of those. And um, so I just asked Tom Hickey and Tom said yes and suddenly had this extraordinary cast and and learned from them actually you know because I I mean I'd made the kind of mad short film in Trinity but I'd never really made a film but one of the things in those days because there were very few films made you know so if you made an Irish film it was a major national achievement um, which meant you could get away with a lot more but you had both a wonderful crew and wonderful actors and of course wonderful writers so so that's how I learned that was the apprenticeship and then when we made it, it was to be screened in the, the Pompidou Centre in Paris. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll invite Sam. You know, it'll be handy. And he rather graciously said that he didn't really go and see his work anymore. Probably too many disappointments, of which this would be one. But he'd happily meet us, you know, myself and the producer, Martin Mann, and, which was great. So we were staying in the Irish College in Paris, which isn't the fancy cultural centre it is now. It actually was a kind of seminary uh, with these kind of slightly monastic cells. But of course, no mobiles. So we were out in Paris for the day and I came back and Liam Swords, the director of the Irish College, was in a complete panic. He says, where were you? I said, we were out. He said, Beckett rang. <laughs> and... Uh, so I said, oh, yes, of course. Yes, I knew that. <laughs> and uh, so we set off with the history of the Irish College under my, uh, under my uh, arm to meet Beckett. And uh, he was, as you know, many people have said, extraordinarily gracious. And, you know, the kind of foreboding, severe image we have isn't true. He was, he was genial. We sat, we drank many, many strong espressos, talked mainly about rugby, yeah. uh, loved rugby, but also talked about Dublin. You know, he, he would ask me quite forensically, well, you know, Dawson Street, is that shop still there? Uh, but he was incredibly kind of, uh, just incredibly genial and, and, and funny man to be with. It's funny, the stories about Beckett, for someone who um, was supposed to be so reclusive, stories keep turning up of people meeting him. And they're mm. all consistent. Mm. They're all nice man. Uh, very happy to have the company and have a drink and ask them had they a copy of the Irish Times by any chance and mm. would talk about rugby. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, you know, and he was very, you know, we left him and it was, you know, if you're in Paris, look me up. And, you know, he, very, very gentle kind of presence. Um, and, uh, you know, and that whole kind of, you know, that whole process of making that film was very formative, you know. Quite a start, though. 
I mean, you know, it's Beckett, Siobhan McKenna, Tom Hickey, yeah. you know. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was ambitious. Um, but again, I think you, I learned from it. As I talk about meeting Beckett that Saturday, Tom Hickey had come over to Paris uh, for the screen in the Pompidou Centre. And he was due to start rehearsals with Tom McIntyre in the Abbey on Monday. And we were meeting Beckett on Monday and, and he said, he was very divided, but he, he said, no, I have, to, I have to go home for rehearsals because the first day and it's McIntyre and it's the Abbey. And I remember being struck because I know Tom really wants to meet Beckett, but I remember learning the lesson, you know, that the work comes first, yeah. you know, yeah. the frippery, the socialising, the name dropping, that's, yeah. that's something else. Yeah. You actually have to turn up for work. And, uh, and I think I learned a lot from Tom. You know, even recently I did a thing up in Enniskillen of Beckett poems with Tom in it. And, you know, we're just thinking about that kind of long journey. <laughs> I'm just thinking as well that what, what he went home to do was probably The Great Hunger, was it? Yeah. Which was extraordinary. Yeah, extraordinary. That's, that's one of the first things I saw in the theatre that yeah. blew my mind. Yeah, totally. Thing, yeah. And it was, you know, and I remember then at the Edinburgh Festival that year, we were over with A. Joe in the film festival and they were there with The Great Hunger. And there was this just great energy you know people look back on the 80s and they talk about it being a dark time it was in many respects but actually my memory of it was of an Ireland of a Dublin where there was huge potential yeah. and, and there was real energy because you could kind of do anything because it hadn't really been done um, and it was great you know to be a small part of that Next musical choice Alan is what? The next uh, Gil Scott Heron uh, is somebody I've always Loved. He was one of those records, kind of from the past. You know, uh, my friend Nicholas. You know, we weren't the generation of the Rolling Stones or 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 Bob Marley or even early Gil Scott Heron, but somehow Nicholas had tapped into this. And I remember hearing, you know, uh, the revolution will not be televised, and kind of again, it being kind of opening a door into a whole way of approaching music. And he is, of course, I mean, he's the father of spoken word. He's the father of, of of you know, rap in lots of ways. And, you know, I followed his, his work since um, and, you know, love the mixture of kind of spoken, spoken word and jazz and blues and it can kind of go anywhere. And I remember this track we're going to play is from his, his, his very final album and I remember talking to him actually on the phone because I wanted to make a film with him. And he was this very, you know, again, very genial uh Man, and this song, which is the opening track on his last album, and it's kind of more of a poem than a, a song, really, and, and he always straddled both. But there's a kind of beauty about it, and, um, and it kind of reminded me, I suppose shortly after this, I, I, I went to America and made a, a series of films in America and spent a long time there. And you saw... I was introduced, I suppose, to the world of African America uh, and how extraordinarily potent that was. And I'd always been drawn to it either through athletes. I remember I used to be a huge fan of Edwin Moses, you know, mm. the 400 hurdler. thought he was like, you know, just an athletic kind of god. But also musically. Um, and central to the African American community, of course, women. And uh, this is Gil Scott Heron's kind of, you know, celebration of his grandmother. And I think I think it's beautiful. I want to make this a special tribute 
I'm coming from a broken home. That's Gil Scott Heron, the choice of Alan Gilson, and who's uh, with me in the studio. Alan, you mentioned, uh, you know, America, and I think, you know, all of us are into music, mm-hmm. that this relationship with America, whether you get to go there or not, mm-hmm. it's in your, you live in it in your head and lots of ways. When you went to America to make films, mm-hmm. um, and, and I'm jumping all over the place now, but when you went to make films, and you wanted to seek out certain people to tell their stories, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you chased down fascinating people like Gore Vidal mm. for instance is a, you know a famous case tell me when you were drawing up that list mm. who, who you were after and why well I mean it was it was interesting because I was I was approached by Granada Television in Britain to do this series um, so I wasn't wholly responsible for the list um, but was you know quite excited by it and a, a lot of it was down to availability you know Sam Shepard wanted to do it but just the timing didn't work. Armistice Moped wanted to do it. And and these were really the idea was to make portraits of American cities through the eyes of a writer, written by a writer. And that was, you know, hugely challenging and exciting. Um and I think people like me growing up in Ireland, as you mentioned, were kind of obsessed with the States because that was the mythology. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where it was all happening, you know. Uh, and I wasn't. If anything, I was a kind of bit hostile to it. I mean, I do remember I had cousins in Detroit and they used to come back every summer. And that was always like an important milestone. And they gave me a, an Ohio State sweatshirt, which I wore proudly for a few years. But that was it, really. You know, I, I wasn't somebody who was particularly fascinated by Bob Dylan or... America, you know, if anything, I was kind of drawn to Africa or Latin America. Um, But when I went, I suppose, over the course of two years, I spent a long time in the States making six different films with with writers like Gore Vidal, Neil Simon in New York, Garrison Keillor up in Minneapolis. It was like an immersion. It was like a a great... uh, it was like, let's go and visit America and I'll have all these writers show me around. So it was it was huge fun, but it was a real uh, education. Yeah. You know, I, I literally remember one weekend on the Saturday we were filming in Cook County Jail in Chicago and on the Sunday we were in the White House with Gore Vidal. And, um, but also, uh, you know, and again, friends are always kind of key in this. I had a wonderful researcher called Len Brown who was a former enemy journalist um, and I think I think the only person Morrissey would give an interview with enemy, and Len is this lovely, lovely man. And um, but he also was really good in music, you know. So like we'd go to Chicago, and I'd never heard of Phil Oaks, and he'd open the door there. And and so it was it was both a kind of education in America, um, what lies behind America, I think, through the writers, but also a kind of musical education, mainly because of Len introducing me to things. Your next uh, musical choice is what? Oh, I mean, I, Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I know this is kind of a, a complex album that Nina Simone wasn't entirely happy with, but there's something, I think we use this in one of the films, um, uh, Nina Simone's Everything Must Change. Uh, but it seemed to capture something of that time when, when I was in the States. And also, I just love Nina Simone you know, for all the, the reasons that I'm not able to articulate. Yeah. Well, there's, uh, no, there's no need. No. Everybody understands. <laughs> and, and I think this song just said, said it all. Everything 
Everything must change. That's Nina Simone. The choice of Alan Gilson is with me in studio tonight, picking all the music on Mystery Train tonight. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. And this is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM here until 9 o'clock, a Sunday special where someone comes in to pick the tunes. Tonight, Alan Gilson and the filmmaker is with me. He's uh, picking all the music tonight. Alan, we've been talking so far just about film, actually, but theatre as well. Mm. Um, when did that begin for you as something you actually did in a, in a professional sense? Well, uh, it started in a kind of amateur sense when I was about four. It's probably gone on in an amateur vein since. All right, then, let's go back. There. Let's go back. But no, I, I, I kind of... I had this thing about I, I used to go to pantomimes and go to musicals, as I mentioned earlier, and I think I was just, I think I still am kind of besotted by that kind of smoke and mirrors kind of magic of theatre, you know, and I still have this kind of draw to go back to it every so often. And uh, so it was always there, and I suppose when I was in Trinity, like lots of English students, I directed a lot of plays there, uh, and, and subsequently, and um, and kind of sometimes I get, I do a piece of theatre and, and think, oh, this is too, the canvas is too small. I remember doing something in the Abbey and doing an interview kind of in, in an exhausted state before a preview and, you know, given out about the fact that tomorrow night in the Abbey it'll just be, you know, the usual suspects who come to see you and you'll go and see them. And, and part of me feels that, that there's something... Oh, well, that's just the opening night. Closed about theatre, yeah. yeah. But then there's something kind of magical. Sure. And, um, uh, you know, so I've always kind of gone back and forth to theatre. Uh, did a couple of plays in the Focus Theatre, that kind of mad uh, den off, off Pembroke Street, uh, Deirdre O'Connell's Focus. And, and, and I kind of love that, actually. I did a production of Jeanne's The Balcony there, which I always have kind of great affection for. But I always try and kind of dip back in every so often. You mentioned the Geely concert earlier. Which mm. It's one of those plays that everybody has agreed yeah. it worked, it happened, yeah. that thing happens, which doesn't happen very often. Mm. Um, but that was certainly one of those occasions. Um, what does it take for it to really, really work, for theatre to, to work as well as it possibly can? And not everybody has been lucky enough to see that happen because mm. it doesn't happen very often. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, the Geely concert is partly about magic. Uh, and I think magic, there is something primal about theatre, and I think magic is at the heart of it. It's a, it's a strange chemistry. I've seen many productions of the Gili concert, which I think is an extraordinary play, that have fallen flat. Um, and I think it's because you need that particular magic, you know, the live moment, a certain combination of acting talent, and of course an audience, you know, and... And it's very rare and it's very hard, actually, even as a director, to bring that together mm. in, in, in a way that works. Um, and, and I think that production, the Gilles concert, did that. It just happened to have the right combination of talents and energies. In but you room. can't necessarily design that on paper. No. We'll get this person, this person, this person, put them in this theatre and it'll work. No. No guarantees. No, I think, I think if you could, it would be easy. Um, and I think part of directing is is about, you know, you have to conjure the magic. And, and that is partly about being able to draw on people and draw on what they need, you know. And some, some performance, some performers demand to be pushed and challenged and some demand to be coaxed and they want your arm around them. Mm. 
And I think you have to judge that. I remember uh, some years after the GD concert, I was directing a play of Tom Murphy's in, in the Abbey. And I had a very young cast, very wonderful cast. Uh, and at a certain point, there was a bit of a scene, occasionally in theatre. This will come as a surprise to you, John, but there are scenes. And uh, somebody lost it and there were tears in the bathroom and uh, I was out trying to coax people out of cubicles and all this. Uh, I remember that night going out to dinner with Tom, who's a, an old hand at this, and, and kind of given out about, you know, this kind of queenie attitude, you know, I had no time for. And Tom saying, Alan, Alan, you got to remember these are actors, you know. Um, they're not bank clerks. They're not working in a factory. We ask them to bear their soul every night. So occasionally they're going to go off the rails. And, uh, you know, it's a simple, obvious lesson, but I think there's great truth in it. Uh, and, and one of the things I like about the artistic process, whether it's any theatre, film, any combination of things, there's a great tolerance for each other's fragilities and vulnerabilities. Um, and I love that experience of people coming together. And sometimes you can feel it's kind of insincere because, you know, you might meet them in five years and barely recognise them. But people come together in an artistic process and there is an extraordinary uh, respect for fragility and uh, humanity that you often don't find in, in any other workplace. Actually, while we're at it, it's further down the list, but we'll play it now, actually. Some music from Benemilo Gili. And that's Old Paradiso, uh, sung there by uh, Gili himself, the choice of uh, Alan Gilson, who's with me in studio. I want to talk in a moment about, you know, if you can compare the two processes in terms of your job uh, and managing people and so on and so forth, but let's have a musical choice before we do that. Um, Phil Oakes is on your list here, I notice. Yes. Um, Martin Hayes. Well, you, you, you choose. Let's, well, I tell you, since we're talking about theatre, let's, uh, let's choose Martin Hayes. Uh, okay. No stranger to your programme, I'm sure. Not at um, all. But this actually came from a theatre production uh, that I did more recently. Um, I, mean, I mean, I suppose, as you've gathered, I grew up in a, a world of kind of Glenn Miller and, and you know, hunt balls and <laughs> tennis clubs, right? <laughs> so actually, you know... The very fashionable modern things like the GAA and traditional music did not enter, even pubs did not enter my horizon as a child. Um, so I really kind of needed an education in You kind of grew music. up like William Butler Yeats somehow. Well. <laughs> You've never been in a pub. Uh, yeah, it's probably true. What was the first pub you were in, by the way? Oh, God, it was probably, uh, it was probably Longs in Donnybrook before the dreaded disco in Wesley. That's, um, just a, that's just a crucial detail, I thought. Just for the record. Yeah, okay. um, but Martin Hayes, uh, extra, extraordinary um, man. He, I suppose the reason I played him today, tonight, is not just because he's an extraordinary uh, musician, but I remember meeting him. I was very aware of him, and I remember hearing his early albums, and they were kind of transformative. And... We were both speaking at some conference in the University of Virginia and we got stranded in an airport and got talking. And, uh, and I liked him immediately and we had 
uh, a certain amount of common and interest in 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 dance uh, and kind of again with a, a little bit of arrogance I suggested to Martin that we collaborate on a kind of dance theatre piece based around Porrick Pierce believe it or not right anyway <laughs> uh, anyway Martin who is both hugely generous as you know with his talent and his time uh, we decided to do a bit of work on this so I had this kind of wonderful uh, week in Martin's house in Connecticut uh, where every day we got up and, and Martin Martin believes in breakfast so he would cook this beautiful breakfast and then we'd go up to his music room and we'd literally spend the day talking about music him playing music uh, or playing other music that we both liked like Arvo Parsh and uh, Tommy Potts and, and it, it was an extraordinary education and again you know the privilege of sitting in a room and Martin saying let me just play you this one and I remember I suppose my way often into songs is through the lyrics. And I remember talking to Martin and he, he said, apropos nothing, he said, I only hear the music. And I said, well, like, so you're listening to Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen. Yeah, I don't hear the lyrics. I don't hear the words. Um, and I always hear the words first. And sometimes the music helps me into the words. Uh, and I remember thinking, that's a whole different way of listening. And, and actually from that day, I began to listen to music differently. But I remember distinctly up in his lovely music room and he played me this, this song, uh, The Dear Irish Boy. Okay, Martin Hayes. Martin Hayes there and uh, The Dear Irish Boy the choice of Alan Gilson and who's picking the music tonight. It is extraordinary what Martin Hayes does and those mm. sorts of musicians. I mean, they, they, they transcend any kind of genre, don't they, really? It's, mm. just, it's just special. Anyway, just before that, you were talking about work in the theatre and how you have to, um, you know, mind people, look after them, and how, how you go about things and what it's, what it's all about. Now, if you're in the theatre, very personal relationship there with the people you're working with and with this, with this text, which is not yours... Mm. When you're writing a movie, it's a, or when you're involved in making a movie, it's a whole different process. Mm. In many ways, less personal, I think, because the people that you're dealing with, mostly, apart from your crew, mm. are sort of executives and commissioners mm. and those sorts of people, and they mightn't really necessarily know what it is you're you're doing, or you know, they, they mm. have a whole different approach to things. Mm. I would have thought that for the good of your your health and well-being, you'd be better off in the theatre all the time. So what's the attraction of making films? Why do you still want to make films? Because, mm. you know, it's like banging your head off a wall, isn't it? Yeah, no, I mean, there's a huge amount of that. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's become a kind of complete kind of circus. But um, I think why I, why I do things, uh, you know, is led mainly by instinct and gut. You know, I don't... Probably if I thought about it, I wouldn't do well, it. Well, don't. Please don't let me ruin anything. Like uh, this, but, but, you know, it is, it is... I think there's something in the expanse of theatre, you know, in the imaginary expanse of it, which... which or, sorry, of a film that yeah. I love, that, you know, that blank screen can become anything. You know, I think that that's, that's hugely exciting. And, and actually, I often, you know, because I don't watch that many films... Often music would be the reference, you know, and I'll often 
think when I'm making a film, and I, I, this doesn't really make sense, but it's certainly how I feel, that I want to try and make the film like a piece of music. And, and that's not always linear, which, mm-hmm. yeah, of course, most films are. Um, so it is, you know, it's a strange, it's a strange process. But I think, I think film could learn a huge amount from theatre. You know, I mean, one of the things that just making unless uh, in, in, in Canada, you know, you realise that rehearsal as a concept has dropped out of film to a large degree. And it was very interesting working Why is that? To save money, is it? Save money. You know, Nicole Kidman is flying in on Tuesday. You've got to start on Wednesday. She's flying out Thursday. Um, And and it was very interesting. I had a wonderful um, theatre actress, Martha Henry, who is kind of the Siobhan McKenna of Canada. And she had very kindly, because she does very little film, agreed to do a small part. And she came in and for her, the words in the script were sacred and she'd ask me if she had to change the slightest thing whereas the film actors just think it's kind of it's kind of a bit of jazz mm-hmm. and you know it's free for all improvisation and sometimes that that can work brilliantly but sometimes it can fall in its face but given the sort of headwreck nature of getting a, a movie or film made what is it in you that would persist why why do you want to do it You've already done it. You could, you could, you could stop now, and you know, and, and it's on your CV and so on. But to volunteer for that seems like <laughs> seems like madness in some ways. Yeah, well, I think that frequently, John. Um, I think it's it's a, it's an urge. You know, I you know I, this isn't kind of false modesty, but but like I genuinely think I've never made a good film. So I think it's that strange kind of Gatsby esque desire the one day I'll get it right. Yeah. I think that does kind of motivate you. Sure. And it's a kind of a rational thing, of course, you know. But also it's your job. That's the side, you know. Occasionally people think, you know, you that, you know, it is also the day job. Mm. You know, you also make films because that's what, that's how you earn your living. That's your trade. Yeah. So it's a combination of those two. Okay, musical choice. Well, one of the other people that I've, been blessed to make a film with was, was of course, the great Liam Clancy. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, that was a real a joy uh, and, a, and a real kind of also huge musical education um, and hard because Liam was actually, you know, you've probably talked to him. He was a hard man to get through. I don't think I've ever done a documentary with anybody that I found it hard, so hard to get through to the actual person. Partly because he's just such, he's, he was such a showman, yeah. you know, and he was so used to giving interviews and, yeah. and actually the well, he's an actor, yeah, as much as a singer, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 actually the the real Liam, who who who's vulnerable and 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 shy in lots of regards, um, takes a long time to get to know, and I don't think I've ever, it's ever taken that long, but I think, I think we got there, you know, and I've huge. Uh, this was the yellow the song of the, the yellow, yellow bitter yeah. yeah and i've huge kind of love for liam and that time of making that film and and um and his music too and i wouldn't have grown up with that music i mean my mother's family the oshis came from caricature and 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 clonmel and tipperary so there was something there um but i had to revisit all those Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem songs with Liam and, and really, really grew to love them kind of profoundly. Mm. 
Um, but also because of the life Liam and, and, and his brothers lived in New York, you know, his genuine friendship with Bob Dylan, uh, you know, I remember when we were making the film, you know, going up to Pete Seeger's house in upstate New York and spending time with Odetta and uh, meeting Gene Ritchie and all these kind of figures, mythical figures from the folk world, uh, was such an extraordinary privilege, you know. Uh, and um, I, I remember Odetta, we, we filmed in, in, in The Bitter End, the, the famous folk club in, in, in the village in New York, and, and Odetta performed and, and she sang Roberta with an oxygen mask and in a wheelchair. And yet she still had that strength and power and uh, extraordinary presence. Um, and that was a real, really kind of fantastic time. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, f I find actually when Liam's anniversary comes around, I find tears come to my eye, you know, mm. actually in, 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 in some strange way. Um, but it was a really great experience and, and also lots of, you know, lots of fun times. I remember uh, I've done a few things with, with Shane McGowan and, you know, of course, we could play his songs all evening. But he wrote one song, The Broad Majestic Shannon, uh, was written for the Clancy Brothers. Uh, but they never got to, 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 uh, to record it. And uh, uh, Liam told me about the time the chain came up to him in the Gramercy Hotel in New York and he had the lyrics of the Broad Majestic Shannon scrawled down the page. So I wrote this song for you and, you know, and Liam said, I couldn't even work out what the lyrics were. So years later, when we came to make the film, uh, Liam decided to record the Broad Majestic Shannon and, um, and, and Shane would come over to sing with him in the bitter end. And, um, and the day before we rehearsed in the ballroom of the Waldorf Astoria, it seemed kind of surreal. Uh, and, and Liam had rewritten it a bit. And uh, he, he kept saying, uh, you know, in the chorus, he kept saying, you know, dry your eyes or whatever, Shane. And as he sang it to Shane, Shane would go, babe, he cut in them every time. But I remember the two of them in the Waldorf Astoria talking about music. And it was extraordinary, you know, these two people who had a phenomenal knowledge of Irish poetry and music and just shooting the breeze, you know. So what song have you chosen from Liam? Well, there's so many, you know, uh, there's so many, many songs. Um, but, but one that always kind of struck me, and it's not played that often, is Ahado. And it seems to conjure kind of Liam at, at his best. You know, he, he once said to me, when he's on stage in front of a huge audience, but he's in a spotlight in the midst of a black stage, but he knows there's thousands of people out there. He feels the most sense of himself. Uh, and even though he was a kind of shy man, uh, that always seemed where he was kind of happiest. And whenever I hear Ahado, it kind of conjures that for me. Liam Clancy there, the choice of Alan Gilson. You know, Bob Dylan wasn't wrong when he said Liam was the best ballad singer of them all. There's no mm. doubt about it. I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned earlier, Alan, about making films and it being your job. Mm. But I know some of the films that, that you've made over the years, OK, it's your job and you get paid to do them and so on, but they've clearly come from a personal mm. position, mm. personal place. 
and um, films I've seen of yours that are that that have come they've definitely come from close to home. You can tell, mm. you mm. know, that it means something to mm. you. This mm. is not something you've been commissioned to make a film about. Mm. So how do you how do you approach that that aspect of what is actually your job? Mm. Uh, you can't afford to spend, um, you know, twenty years of your life. Mm. Um, on a personal project, mm. uh, which may go nowhere at the end of the day. So when you invest your time and energy into something like that, what do you have to take into account? I mean, I suppose I've been lucky to a degree that generally when I've had an idea, I've been able to, to make it. Um, and But certainly, you're right, something like Portran where... This was called what the asylum, the asylum was called. Yeah. We, spent, we spent a year in, in Portran Psychiatric Hospital and uh, and... You know, I, I suppose over time I've made a series of documentary series like that. I made one in, in St. Francis Hospice and I made one about suicide and um, uh, I made one about old age. Um, and, you know, which obviously I have a melancholy streak, clearly. But um, but a lot of the time people say, oh, you know, you made those interesting documentaries about issues. Mm. Whereas I think you're right. It's never an issue you know, for me, it, it usually comes from, uh, you know, a personal story or an instinct. I remember, you know, my own mother and father both died in in, in hospice care. And, and that was the, the spark to make the series, The Hospice. Um, so usually I think I have to have that kind of personal connection. Um, and what what's the motivation then? What... It, What's in it for you, if you know what I mean? That sounds like a, that's a mm. wrong expression, but that sounds like it's to do with, with uh, personal gain. But what is in it for you to go into that world? Um, and what, I, I, what, what do you hope it will do for you? Never mind anybody else. I think, I think there's, there's a curiosity. I think certainly with documentary making, it's as, it's as simple as that. You know, you want to, you have an instinct, you have a curious nature, you want to find something out. Or... Um, and it's a real privilege. I mean, one of the things about documentary is a real privilege. You can walk into people at their most vulnerable moment and, and talk to them about their most vulnerable experiences. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's the job. That's the deal. And, um, and I remember when we did the series in the hospice, uh, we filmed 12 people who, who, who naturally died uh, during the course of filmmaking. And I gave the full interviews of each person to the family. And the family said... Oh, mum or dad or whoever it was told you loads of stuff they never told us. Yeah. And it's partly because you protect your own loved ones mm-hmm. and the documentary maker is kind of, has a licence to ask the difficult questions. Are you afraid of death? Mm. Do you think you're mad? All these questions. Um, and, and so that's a real privilege. And I don't quite know why I do it. I think what people don't realise is that, and I've, I've, I know people who've worked on those kind of films, mm. possibly worked on some of those ones you're talking about, mm. And they're in bits after it. Yeah. It takes its toll on people because mm. you have to go into that world. Mm. This is mm. not, you don't mm. helicopter in and do a three-minute report for the news. Mm. This is, this is yeah. you're, in, you're embedded. Mm. It's true. You know, and, and I think I, you know, I, I, I know I've done interviews and I've turned around and seen the crew all in tears and yeah. I'm thinking, why am I crying? Yeah. And I think partly it's because at some level that's your professional job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not about you. It's about them. And of course, you're moved and uh, uh, extraordinarily privileged to be in that position. 
But I think with documentary as opposed to other things, you have to remember that actually it isn't about you. And as soon as you start thinking it's about you, you've lost it. Mm. Um, so I think you try and keep you try and keep a sort of composure around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that doesn't mean you're dispassionate or you're... Yeah, but after it's all over. I mean, it's one thing, it's one mm. thing you know, being in tears, listening to somebody telling you a sad story. Yeah. That's, that's one thing. But having been in that world mm. for so long, mm. and it might not be that easy to resume normal business afterwards, mm. you know. That's, I don't know. I've, I haven't done anything in that level, to that, it's, in that depth. In my it's funny, time. maybe it's, it's, it's a lack in me. But yeah. I don't feel that. Right. I, I feel when I look back on, on those various projects, um, I look back on them, even though there was terrible heartache and, 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 and distress in, in many regards. But I look back on them with huge affection because they were hugely affirmative. Mm-hmm. You know, if you drove out of Portran or drove out of St. Francis Hospice, you drove out with an appreciation of life. Uh, that you mightn't have had driving in mm. because it was so precious, you know. Uh, and so all those films, and, and generally I think in the documentary area, I've been drawn to things where people are on the edge of their experience because that's where we reveal ourselves. That's where we appreciate ourselves. Um, and I always, you know, came away from those projects may be tired perhaps but but certainly with a real sense of uh, affirmation in life mm. uh, and that was the gift that these people gave me. I remember uh, there was a wonderful woman called Beverly, young woman two young kids, beautiful kids and she was dying in St Francis Hospice and she was partly doing the documentary I think because she wanted to leave something for the kids and we got the call, we'd arranged with Beverly you know that we could film her the whole way and she was very open we got the call Beverly was dying you know it, the time was now and we rushed out to the hospice and we got there and she'd sort of perked up and Beverly had a great sense of humour and she was settling down then with her sister to watch a Julia Roberts movie and I remember thinking isn't that beautiful that she can still enjoy a Julia Roberts movie with her sister you know and the banalities of that we use around death and dying and you know all those kind of cliches you realise that those cliches have value and mm. are an affirmation of, yeah. of, of the thing that these people are losing. It's interesting because, you know, people talk about catharsis in art, mm. but this is not the same as making a horror film and scaring yourself. Mm. You know, mm. it's, it's not that. It's mm. not even the same as going to the theatre and seeing a play about something mm. like death. This, this is talking to real people. Mm. And, I mean, it's an obvious thing to say, but there's huge responsibility comes with that as well. Mm. Massive. Mm. And I remember at the time being very conscious about how you'd handle that in the in the asylum film mm, in mm. particular. You know, I remember thinking that must be so difficult to mm. keep on the right side because, yeah, like a like a doctor, mm. you know, you've got a job to do. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah, no yeah. You're, you're you're no use if you're mm, upset. Mm, mm. You've got to do your job. But I think it they are challenging, and there's huge ethical challenges in these things. And you know, broadcasters now they only worry about legality. They don't really worry or talk about ethics. And I think it's like anything else. You know, it's a relationship with somebody. And if you're straight and honest with them, and in all those films, I would have been very clear with the people, well, this is what we're going to talk about. Now, maybe uh, 
it's not right for you to do it. And that's another discussion. But the people who embarked on the journey, mm -hmm. they knew they were going on a journey. And also, I think people, particularly, say, in Portran, where there were people in Portran who'd been there for 50 years, who had nobody in the outside. Nobody listened to them. Nobody wanted to hear them. We all want, you're doing it now. You know, mm. <laughs> tell me a little bit about yourself. We all want to be heard. We want our experience to be acknowledged, even briefly, on this earth. And I remember how delighted people were in Portran because somebody sat down and said, tell me a little bit about your life. Next musical choice, Alan. Well, since we're on that, we might uh, take the Emmy Lou Harris track um, because, I, as I mentioned, I did a series on suicide and that came out of uh, a dear cousin of mine, Valerie, son died by suicide. Same thing that so many families across the country have experienced the phone call, the disbelief. Uh, and I remember at the graveside, Valerie saying to me, you need to do something about this. You need to say something about this. And, and that literally led to the, the series of, of, of documentaries about suicide. And this song, which is actually a Lucinda Williams song, Sweet Old World, and I love Lucinda Williams and her kind of cracked, lived-in voice. I love all that. But somehow there's some beauty in how Emmy Lou Harris does this. I think there's a real challenge with suicide. Because we want to say, stop, don't do it. Pull yourself back from the brink, you know. Uh, and yet we also need to acknowledge the experience of people who might have come to the brink, uh, acknowledge their despair and even their desire perhaps to jump off. Uh, and this song, I don't even know if it's probably about something else, but <laughs> to me, this song seemed to capture a beautiful compassion about saying, look, I get it. I get that you can't go on, but I want you to go on. Sweet old world. Emily Harris, uh, the choice of uh, Alan Gilson. And Alan, I'm not sure if you said this on the programme or you said it just as we were, as you, when you came in tonight to talk about, to talk about the programme, you were talking about um, that you, you hadn't, you, you couldn't play and you couldn't sing, but you loved music. Mm. Um, it, it, is that, did you really, can you really not sing at all or play anything or? No, I wish, I mean, I wish I could. I mean, they say everybody can sing, so maybe I can, but... Uh, no, but, I don't mean, you know, you're a singer as yeah, you'd stand up on a stage. No, but, but I, I'd love to. I mean, I think it's it's the real gift, you know, and, and you know, I'm, I'm blessed with, you know, two daughters at home who, who have, you know, wonderful musical talent and, and ability. And, and I'm kind of in awe of that, mm. you know, and I think it's just such a gift to give children. Um, but. But at the same time. You know, even though you don't always have to be able to do something to appreciate. Yeah, well, and well, what what's the appeal of music then for you? I mean, I can understand someone who plays the piano, mm. um, but I've got friends, for instance, who, as the expression goes, haven't a note in their head, mm. and they love music. Yeah, you know. I mean, I think there is something genuinely transcendent about music. I think there is, you know, great music 
touches something that perhaps other art forms only approach, you know, uh, certainly things as, 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 as literal as, as film. Mm. Um, you know, I think there is, there is, to use that word again, there is a magic about it. Um, and, and that when you're in the presence of it, uh, it just feels a huge privilege, you know, and, and it's hard to articulate that, but uh, I certainly know that, you know, whenever I'm working, I always have music on. You know, a lot of people say they need silence, but I would always have music on, always in the car. It's always there. Um, and, and maybe it's just some, some other kind of parallel channel. But do you, do you use that music as, I mean, as opposed to something that's comforting in the background, do you use it as a tool, as something to, for instance, open a part of your yeah. brain or whatever? Yeah. It does I, that. I, th I think it does that. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly, certainly when you're writing, uh, I mean, I know a lot of people find music distracting, but I find it sort of elevates you to a different state, you know, and, and, and different pieces of music will do different things. I know, say, if I go out running, I have certain music that I'd never play. You know, what do you then, listen to when you're running? Oh, God, it could be, you know, it could be anything. A lot of Bob Marley. Yeah. Bob Marley is, is definitely good for running. Um, but all manner of stuff, you know, probably tracks I'd be far too embarrassed to own up to here. But uh, <laughs> it's all right. But whereas, you know, say if you're trying to write, you know, you could nearly put on the entire ECM catalogue. And yeah. it just kind of it just kind of elevates you out of the, uh, the mire you're in. Yeah. So your next musical choice. Um, I know. When do you listen to Lord Kitchener? Well, uh, not enough, I suspect. Uh, my wife, Catherine, is is from Trinidad ah, right. and Tobago. So it's always an injection of levity and sunshine, even though it's kind of wild and crazy place. Uh, but Lord Kitchener, you know, is one of the great Calypsonians. And, uh, you know, Calypso really hails from uh, Trinidad, which is this extraordinary place that I've been privileged to spend a lot of time in. Um, and it's away from all this stuff, away from all this kind of heavy, dark stuff, you know, uh, this extraordinary energy and, and life and uh, everything in Trinidad feels like it's at fever pitch. And, and then when you're there for carnival, it feels like fever pitch plus, plus, plus. Um, and but Calypso is extraordinary. It's never I suppose the origins of Calypso. There is an element of social commentary. Yeah. It's a kind of combination of social commentary and political engagement with this kind of mad party spirit, uh, which which is all pervading, you know. And you, a lot of it's kind of bawdy as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, very bawdy. Yeah, I had one track I wanted to play and my wife said, you can't play that. <laughs> uh, so in deference to John Kelly, we've we've a politer I track. I appreciate that. This um, is a very sophisticated place you've come to. You know. <laughs> I realise that. But uh, this this track from Lord Kitchener, I mean, he's one of the great Calypsonians. And yeah. uh, in, in, in the early 70s, because of a polio epidemic, the Trinidadian government did, you know, the unforgivable, which is they postponed Carnival, which is just like a disaster. And they postponed it to May, which is the rainy season. And of course, Carnival was rained out. Uh, so Lord Kitchener wrote this Rainorama, which is his kind of his big hit. And he actually built a house uh, on the proceeds of this record, which he calls uh, Rainorama. And he has it in uh, neon in front of the house in Port Bay.
Lord Kitchener there and Rainorama, which is the choice of Alan Gilsonen, who's been with me tonight, uh, picking all the tunes. Just before you go, Alan, unless, as I say, uh, it's in cinemas, all good cinemas, I think is the way to look at yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and uh, working with anything with Catherine Keener in it, <laughs> I think I think should be seen. Um, you may not be able to answer this question, but what's 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 in the pipeline? Do you know? Because I know it's the nature in the nature of your job. It could be you could be a long time trying to set the next thing up. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm not. I'm always a bit kind of. Um, it, it, it's like a, a suspicion uh, that I I don't like to talk about what's coming down the tracks, but yeah, partly because I can never quite remember. You know, yeah. you're usually working on about ten things at one time. So you would have a bunch of possible projects. Yeah. In the works. Yeah, at different stages. And the hope that something might catch. Yeah. 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 And when you've just finished. Because I know how stressful it is in your line of work, you know, to get something over the line and get it out. You have a movie out now. Mm. Do you start work the next morning, if you know what I mean? Do you ever take a break from worrying about what the next thing is going to be? I think it's always there, you know. Yeah. And, 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 and the strange thing about having a film like Unless Out is, you know, that was made probably 18 months ago. Yeah. You know, so you're always kind of like... It's old news. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're always moved on to the next thing. But, yeah, I mean, I think... I, I think there's some there's some lovely thing that, you know, you wake up the next day with kind of fresh idea or fresh hope and that kind of keeps you going. Great. Alan, thanks a million for coming in and for picking all these great tunes. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. And your your last call, uh, again, something from my childhood, and I, it was from a movie that came out in 1965. I'm going to break it to people gently in case anybody runs away from the radio really quick because a lot of people don't like The Sound of Music. <laughs> Mainly because it was a, you know, it was always on at Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I absolutely love the sound of music, and it was definitely one of those things as a kid I was brought to. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's a brilliant film. Never mind the music, uh, and and it's kind of always been with me. But then, uh, our youngest daughter Isabel kind of rediscovered it and and decided to to direct her own production of the sound of music at about the age of seven, uh, starring her sister Maya uh, in in the lead role. And um, I assume you were Christopher Plummer, were you? I, I was the assistant stage manager. Oh, I was okay. nothing as. Right. Occasionally, I would intervene in rehearsals and say, just because it was all getting a bit shoddy, and I'd say something, and Isabel would say, "No, Dad, I'm the director," and uh, so she didn't pick it up off the floor. But, but they did together, the two sisters, uh, and I do love the music. But they did this kind of little magical production of The Sound of Music, which was one of those moments in life that you'll always kind of treasure. And, you know, there's something about Edelweiss. Uh, I think I think if I could sing, or I probably should sing, it probably would be Edelweiss, because Christopher Plummer couldn't really sing. And there's something kind of be- beautiful and innocent, and I guess at a time when kind of the whole European thing is turned to the right again, there seems to be something quite uh, delicate and pure uh, and sentimental uh, about Edelweiss. Alan, thanks a million. You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.